The soul of summer in Columbus. The long weekends, the return of festivals, the connection with friends on a rooftop under the stars. The just five more minutes while on an adventure with your tiny travelers. Long live summer and the exploration of Columbus's neighborhoods. Discover itineraries from your favorite Columbus residents like Jenny Britton and Coyote Peterson and learn how to make this summer one to remember. Plan every detail, every minute of summer at experiencecolumbus.com slash liveforward. This is A Different Perspective with Kevin Randall. A retired U.S. Lieutenant Colonel, Kevin Randall has been studying UFOs for nearly 50 years. Kevin has investigated some of the most famous UFO cases in the world and has been consulted for dozens of documentaries about UFOs. Considered one of the leading experts into the Roswell UFO crash of 1947, Kevin has written more than 25 books about UFOs, including the recently published Roswell in the 21st century. Now, here is the host of A Different Perspective, Kevin Randall. And welcome to this edition of A Different Perspective. I am Kevin Randall, as you probably can guess. Uh, before we get into the meat of today's program, I've got a couple of rants um, that I think are important. First of all, um, and I've, I've mentioned this before, and I'm, I'm going to stop doing it after this. But I just wanted to say again that I'm a little annoyed at the rating system on Amazon. Now, as a writer of a book, I know that there are people who are going to love the book and people are going to hate it. And I understand that. I could write the world's greatest book on whatever topic you want to specify, and there's going to be people who do not like it. Not got, not got a problem with that. What they've done at Amazon is you can review a book or you can rate a book. And under the ratings, you don't have to explain why you give it the rating you did. Now, if you give it four or five stars, I'm happy with that. I love that. That's great. If you give it one or two stars, I'd like to know why. I've read a couple of reviews where I've gotten one or two stars on a book and it has nothing to do with the topic of the book. It has nothing to do with the writing in the book. It has to do with the condition of the book when it arrived. And one guy was annoyed that the cover had been torn or uh, it was slightly warped in some fashion. And I'm thinking that's not the fault of the writer. And I don't think you should degrade a book simply because something beyond the writer's control happened to the book. It had nothing to do with the writing, had nothing to do with the content. It had to do with the, the packaging of the book. So if you're going to give a book a one or two star rating, I think you're obligated to explain why. And that helps the writer. It tells me what I need to know to improve the quality of the next book. But it tells me whether or not I'm responsible for that problem. And I actually can, uh, corresponded with a guy who had rated a book one star, and it had to do specifically with the condition of the book. It had nothing to do with it, but he thought I was responsible for that, and I could not talk him out of it, meaning I didn't send him the book. I didn't print the book. I had nothing to do with that, but he was annoyed with the condition of it, so I, I took the hit on that, and that's not fair to the writer. If he had said, well, I didn't like the content, I didn't like the writing, there was typographical errors or whatever, that's something I can fix, but uh, that didn't happen. Secondly, and we talked about this just a little while ago, and I'm going to touch on it again briefly, and it's this Project Mogul nonsense. I just, just saw another 
skeptical website, belittling the Roswell case, saying simply, we all know it's Project Mogul. It was a top secret project. I will repeat here briefly, Project Mogul, as it was conducted in New Mexico, was not top secret. It was not classified. They were doing unclassified work using equipment that was bought off the shelves. The top secret classification meant that the purpose of Mogul was classified, which was a spy on the Soviet Union. But what was going on in Mexico was unclassified. They, were, they, they cared so little about recovering the materials, the balloons, that in a couple of cases, they didn't recover them because it was too hard to get to them. So they just ignored them, leaving them out there. The other thing I wanted to point out is when you look at the illustrations as published by any number of sources, they show this long array that's 600 feet long that has two or three Raywin targets attached to it. Those were launched on the East Coast prior to them arriving in New Mexico, prior to the, any launches in New Mexico. The June 4th launch, and I've said this repeatedly, I'll say it again, was canceled. What they launched was a cluster of balloons, and that was just made up of some of the balloons, and it carried a microphone aloft so they could practice or they could see how well the microphone would pick up the detonations on the ground. There were no Raywind targets attached to it. In fact, if you look at the proper illustration, starting with flight number five, which is the first one that's fully illustrated, and said it was made up exactly as Flight number four had originally been made up, at least from what um, uh, Charles Moore said to me and said to other people, there were no Raywind targets. They did not use Raywind targets on those balloons until sometime later in July, which negates the debris, the foil debris found in General Ramey's office. So uh, then there was one other thing that I almost forgot here. When Brazel came into the, rant, uh, the office, the sheriff's office, he brought some of the material with him to show him what it was. That means that Marcel would have seen the balloon remnants had that's been what it was and would have been able to identify it as such at that time. What we know based on what General DuBose told us was that material was collected in a um, sealed container and hand carried to Fort Worth and put on another airplane to be taken to Washington, D.C. So material trans. Uh, it was sent beyond uh, Fort Worth to Washington, D.C. prior to uh, Marcel going out to the ranch site. All of this would have negated the um, nonsense that took place on July 8th. Mogul is uh, a rejected explanation. We know it was canceled. We know what uh, happened uh, during those hours before July 8th, 1947, and all this. And so I'm going to try never to mention Mogul again on this program. But this thing just came up, and it so annoyed me that I wanted to bring that up. Others have asked me how specifically I got involved in the Roswell case. And I'll say this is something that was not on my radar at the time. I had been at a um, science fiction convention, and those of you who have ever been to science fiction conventions know that they always end in the term con. The one here in uh, Iowa is called Icon for obvious reasons. And in um, Minneapolis, it's called Minicon. And in St. Louis, it's called Archcon because of the great arch there. And in Milwaukee, it was called Xcon. And I explain what con meant so you'd understand the connotation of Xcon there. There was going to be a de debate between science fiction writers and two fellows up from the Center for UFO Studies. 
I was going to be with the science fiction writers, and Fred Pohl was one of them, and I'm not sure, but I think George R.R. R. Martin might have been another of those before he became George R.R. R. Martin, and we were going to debate these guys from the center. Well, when the fellows from the center arrived, it wasn't fellows, it was one guy, and I didn't think this was a fair debate, three against one, so I switched sides. It was a debate. You can do that in a debate, um, and I'm fully cognizant then. I, I was fully cognizant then of the... Um, UFO field. So I thought it was a fair fight in, in that respect. So I, um, I sat down with Don Schmidt and we uh, debated the science fiction writers about the validity of flying saucers, UFOs. When, it, when that was over the debate, I sat down with Don and I, uh, I turned on my tape recorder. I interviewed him for a book I was just completing called The UFO Casebook, which was the first UFO book I wrote. I'd written magazine articles in the 70s until that market dried up. Um, and that seemed to be the end of it. And a few days later, maybe a few weeks later, I'm not sure the exact timing, I got a call and Don wanted to know if I wanted to participate in an investigation to Roswell, the little Roswell case. I think the thinking was that I had a military background and a lot of the witnesses would be former military, retired military, and I would be able to establish a rapport easier than someone who had no military experience. I would understand some of the nuances and the way things um, were done in the military that that uh, civilians might understand. And one of the things I first noticed is General DuBose, at the time, uh, Colonel DuBose, he was the chief of staff of the Air Force, a very important position in the 8th Air Force. He had been identified in any number of different publications as General Ramey's aide. Well, it, Brigadier General does not have a full colonel as his aide. He has a first lieutenant or a captain. The chief of staff of the Army, four-star general, or at the time five-star general, Dwight Eisenhower, would have had a full colonel as his, as his aide. He would have had a number of aides, senior aides and junior aides. So that was one of the things I picked up on immediately, and we could, we could move on beyond that. So I was invited down, invited to go along on the investigation with an idea that I would uh, be able to provide some of this insight. And we got to Roswell, and I think I've mentioned this before, that the first few days just didn't work out. We were supposed to meet with Frank Joyce, the radio operator, but he said he was sick. We were meeting with a group of UFO people. And I say it that way because they obviously weren't investigators or researchers um, to talk about their experiences. And it turned out that they were more into the, well, say, paranormal and new age aspect of things than really into UFOs. So that didn't work out. We traveled down to Roswell. We met with Steve. Uh, Steve. We went with um, Cliff Stone. He shows up. He doesn't want us to come to his house at, at, in the beginning, and I don't know. I don't know why because his address was in the phone book. But he um, met us at a Burger King there on North Main Street in Roswell, and he shows up in uniform, which probably was inappropriate. And then we drove to his house, which was on Tilden Street. And if anybody of you have been studying things about our constitutional crisis going on now with the January 6th investigation, you'll know who President Tilden was. He lost to Hayes in the 1876 election where there were, I think, three states, three states that sent double slates of electors to Congress to certify the election and became a big mess. I just mentioned that as fun. But anyway, uh, Stone didn't pan out. I mean, he knew a lot about UFOs and he knew something about Roswell, but nothing that we didn't know or he did, didn't have any inside information that would help us understand what was going on. 
So I'm thinking this is pretty well a bust. There's, there's really nothing here to inspire us to continue the investigation. The next day we were going to go meet with um, Bill Brazel, the son of the man that found the debris, of course. And uh, we had with us a fellow and I, his, his, named Don, and I forget his last name for some reason, probably another Biden moment here. But he had a metal detector and we knew approximately where the debris field was. So we, he was there doing the metal detection while we were going to Carrizoso to meet with Bill Brazel. And I'll explain a little bit about what happened with Bill Brazel when we come back, because I'm going to have to take a break here in just a moment. Um, more information always available at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. And I will return in just a moment or two. Thank you. The soul of summer in Columbus. The long weekends, the return of festivals, the connection with friends on a rooftop under the stars. The just five more minutes while on an adventure with your tiny travelers. Long live summer and the exploration of Columbus's neighborhood. Discover itineraries from your favorite Columbus residents like Jenny Britton and Coyote Peterson and learn how to make this summer one to remember. Plan every detail every minute of summer at experiencecolumbus.com slash live forward. We know you can't get enough of your favorite flavors. Luckily, Kroger Free Pickup makes it easy to grab what you need without any surprise fees. Whether it's extra buns for the barbecue or those chips you just can't quit, start your cart with the Kroger app. Kroger fresh for everyone. $35 order minimum restrictions may apply subject to availability. Get more ways to save at the buy five or more save $1 each sale. Just buy five or more participating items and save a dollar each with card. Kroger fresh for everyone. The soul of summer in Columbus. The long weekends, the return of festivals, the connection with friends on a rooftop under the stars. The just five more minutes while on an adventure with your tiny travelers. Long live summer and the exploration of Columbus's neighborhoods. Discover itineraries from your favorite Columbus residents like Jenny Britton and Coyote Peterson and learn how to make this summer one to remember. Plan every detail every minute of summer at experiencecolumbus.com slash live forward. And I am back all by myself, which means I'm doing my best to stop the spread of any viruses, be it monkey pox or whatever thing else comes down the pike. Well, when we left, and I say we, including everybody who's paying attention here, I was talking about Bill Brazel and our meeting with Bill Brazel in Carrizoso. We met him in a small restaurant, cafe, bar there, sat down at the table and was talking to him briefly. And the first thing I remember him saying um, after the introductions, we gave a little bit about our backgrounds. He says, well, my dad found this thing. And then he started telling us the story that um, the discovery of the brief from his point of view, from his perspective. Um, he described three of the items he'd found in his wandering the pasture later on. Uh, one of them was the foil that we hear about, the molecules with the memory, the foil that you wad up and it would unfold itself when you let it go. He uh, described something that was um, like monofilament fishing line, but you could shine a light in one end and it comes out the other. And I said, you mean fiber optics? And that's what he meant. And a piece of um, wood-like debris. He said it was at the density of like balsa wood, very lightweight, but he couldn't whittle on it with his pocket knife. And he thought that was strange because he said that he'd cut barbed wire with that pocket knife. He wanted to get a shaving to see if there was any stratification. It was kind of a broken piece of material. Found, found uh, He said maybe 10, a dozen of these little pieces. And we chatted with him about this and what happened to him. And that kind of turned it around for me. And I think it turned it around for Don, too. Because at that point, we were pretty well disappointed in the trip. We thought that um, 
we're going to find an explanation. And Bill Brazel kind of laid it out for us. And here was a guy who was very sincere, had no desire to get his 15 minutes of fame, had no desire for money, had no desire for anything. He was just telling us a story. He told us at one point that um, he told his wife, Shirley, that if he liked us, he'd help us out. And if he didn't like us, he wouldn't. Well, obviously, he liked us because we sat there for an hour, hour and a half and discussed this whole thing. On our next trip down, um, he took us out to show us where the debris field was. And I think we were maybe the first people he'd ever taken out there. And uh, and, I, and I think I've mentioned this before. Um, we're eight o'clock in the morning. We're driving in his pickup truck across New Mexico desert. And he says, you boys want a beer? And Don says, no. And I'm thinking, well, somebody better drink with him. So I had a warm beer at eight o'clock in the morning as we drove across the prairie or the high desert in New Mexico. And we stopped, he stopped the pickup truck. And you've seen the picture here of him and Don standing there by the truck. And he says, this is the point where I found uh, the, some of this debris. And he said, uh, there was a gouge down through the um, pasture there um, and, and described what he had seen and what he'd done. And at that time, uh, on that second trip, we also talked to Frank Joyce, who had not been available to us before. And Joyce was feeling much better and told us his experiences as a announcer and reporter for KGFL in Roswell, New Mexico. We talked to Walter Hott, giving, getting his position, and the story becoming more and more complex as it went on, as, as we learned about it. It was clear to us that a balloon explanation wasn't going to work, regardless of the balloon. And I had done some research into balloons. I've got a bunch of documents from the Navy and uh, other um, labs doing balloon experimentation. Um, we had not come up with Project Mogul specifically I think Robert Todd may be the first one that connected Project Mogul to, to the Roswell case, but we had I'd come across those sorts of things before. Uh, Bill Moore, uh, who did um, the Roswell incident with Stan Friedman, did talk to Charles Moore, not related. Moore being one of the scientists working with the people in Alamogordo, New Mexico, where the balloons were being lost, these um, balloon arrays. Uh, learned a little bit about that, learned, learned some things from him that didn't really come out. And I've, I've done another book, um, Understanding Roswell. And some of this information is covered in greater detail in that book. I think it's important information to understand exactly how some of this stuff transpired and, and clear away some of the crud, uh, clutter, I'm going to say crud, some of the clutter that has gathered around this thing since um, since the investigation began in 1978. So we learned a little bit more. And there was a fellow in Roswell we talked to. Um, Cliff Stone introduced us to him, by the way, named Ralph Hike. And Hike said to me at one point in this second trip to Roswell, um, would you like to talk to the daughter of the sheriff? Well, I'm thinking, yeah, we'd really like to talk to her. So he put us in touch and we talked to Phyllis McGuire. And the reason Phyllis McGuire becomes important in this is because in 1947, the sheriff's living quarters were above the office and the jail. And I think in 1947, what they did was you elected a sheriff and his wife became the matron. So you had the people there on site to take care of the prisoners when there were prisoners in the jail. And so when Mac Brazel came in on that Sunday afternoon, Phyllis McGuire was there. And they chased her out of the office for a while, but she was there and, and she reported that Brazel brought some of the debris with him. So we know debris was brought in on Sunday. 
And the sheriff uh, said, well, we need to talk to the boys out at the base and called out there and Jesse Marcel was the one who responded to that. So, I mean, that's, and that's kind of how we get to the point that debris was uh, in Roswell prior to Marcel going out there and had it been a weather balloon. And since there were no ray wind targets, there would have been none of this foil that they talk about uh, at all. And a balloon at that time, I, there were neoprene balloons and they started in a sort of a tan color, I think, a light tan brownish color. But if they laid out in the sun very long or were exposed to sunlight, they turned black. And that was what you see in General Ramey's office in the picture. You see the Raywin target torn up in front of um, the balloon. And, and you see Marcel crouched by it. And then you see uh, Ramey and DuBose behind it in other, other pictures. But you can see the balloon envelope in there as well. They would have recognized this for what it was. There would have been no reason to take it to Fort Worth. There had been no reason for any of this other ancillary material to take place once um, Brazel showed up with the material. Brazel himself said that he had seen weather observation devices on two other occasions, and this was nothing like that. And that's quoted in the newspaper, the July 9th article that the skeptics like to uh, quote, uh, forgetting that important part of it. So uh, Brazel said, this is not like anything I found before, but had it been one of the balloons launched in Alamogordo, it would have been exactly like that. So that kind of changes the con uh, complexion of the story. And what we had, we'd gotten a hold of a reunion list for the 509th Bomb Group, which is the unit assigned to the base there in Roswell. And I had a um, telephone directory that Ralph Hike had secured from, from just the base with the phone numbers of the people in the base. And we had, um, uh, we had the yearbook. We had a copy of the yearbook. Walter Hunt made it for me. I uh, decided we needed that because it listed, you know, like 1,500 people assigned to the base. And we needed to have that. And he sent that to me. So we had that. And in that was a picture of the provost marshal, Edwin Easley, who was the um, guy responsible for security. Provost marshal, for those of you who don't understand, is like the chief of police. And he had two units assigned to him, the MPs, the military police company, and a special service squadron, which was another security uh, group. The MPs took care of uh, patrolling the perimeter and the guards at the gate and patrolling downtown to keep the... Uh, Soldiers in line and the security guys took care of the things on the base that dealt with the atomic weapons um, and security on the flight line and that sort of thing. So we, we, we have that information. So I am in Chicago at the board meeting for the Center for UFO Studies. Don at the time was a member of the board. And they said to me, you know, there's a telephone in there and you can use it if you'd like, which at this time, for those of you who weren't around, uh, long distance phone calls cost money. It wasn't like today where you can call all over the world practically for uh, nothing at all, given the internet connection and the cell phones and all of that sort of thing. You had to pay it and there was a, a fee for long distance phone calls. So the opportunity to use a phone that I didn't have to pay for the phone calls was, was a real boon. So I thought, well, first thing I'm gonna do is call Edwin Easley. So I called him up and we're chatting about this and, and uh, he was always circumspect in what he would say to me. And I would ask him a question and if he didn't feel he could answer, he said, well, I can't tell you that's one secrecy. So we know he's sworn to secrecy about this event. Um, and I said to him at one point during that conversation, are we following the right path? And he said, what do you mean? And I said, well, we think it was extraterrestrial. And he said, well, let me put it this way. It's not the wrong path. Well, being I was in Chicago, I couldn't record the phone call. Now, people have said to me, well, I'd have gone out and bought a cheap recorder at that time and gone back and 
called him again. There was no reason for that kind of urgency because as far as I knew, um, I would have opportunities to speak with him again uh, about, about these sorts of things. Mark Rodiger, who's the scientific director, had, um, I can't remember, he called me or sent me an email about having an opportunity to go to the Fort Worth, Dallas area where Easley lived. And he said, I would like to meet with Easley. Could I arrange it? And I'm thinking, yeah, this would be great. I'd like somebody else to talk to him besides me. So I tried to set that up and I got a letter back, a very nice letter from one of the daughters, uh, Easley's daughters, who said that her father was terminally ill. And the mother was freaking out, thought I was some kind of government agent trying to get something on them to cause them aggravation. And there was no opportunity to get to talk to Easley again, and there was no opportunity for Mark Rodder to meet with him. Now, we do have some information that transpired after that coming from the family members that suggests that this was the same thing, uh, I mean, extraterrestrial in origin. But Easley was an important witness for, I was going to say us, but I think it was more for me because I was the one who talked to him and and had a feeling for what it was. And I understood the um, reluctance to violate the oath, even though it had been 40 years um, since the events took place. But there was great reluctance on his part to talk about things that he felt was still covered by his oath. And I could, I could respect that and I could understand that. And I also got the feeling he wanted to help us as much as he could without violating that oath. And one of the things he told me that I think leads to that conclusion was he mentioned that Mac Brazel hadn't been held in the stockade, but he had been held at the guest house. On, on the post. And I think, well, Mac Brazel complained about being held in jail and the guest house would be somewhat nicer than jail. But if you're not allowed to leave, well, then it's in essence the same thing. So anyway, that's part of um, reasons that I think that, that we're, I, I lean toward the extraterrestrial. I will point out that I, the book Understanding Roswell covers some of this in more depth and gives you a better feel for what was going on at that time. So if you get a chance, take a look at that book. Um, which is available, of course, on Amazon. I will be back in just a moment, and we will talk about some of the failures of the investigation. So please stick around. The soul of summer in Columbus. The long weekends, the return of festivals, the connection with friends on a rooftop under the stars. The just five more minutes while on an adventure with your tiny travelers. Long live summer and the exploration of Columbus's neighborhoods. Discover itineraries from your favorite Columbus residents like Jenny Britton and Coyote Peterson and learn how to make this summer one to remember. Plan every detail, every minute of summer at experiencecolumbus.com slash forward. And I have returned. I have notes here to uh, kind of guide this conversation, but I, I, I don't think I mentioned up front the purpose of this show is it's kind of a Roswell, um, revisiting of Roswell, I suppose I should say. This is the 75th anniversary of the, of the crash, whatever the crash may have been. And I thought it would be an appropriate time to discuss a little bit of this in depth. And that was kind of why I'm, I'm focusing on Roswell in this show and that uh, some of the information that I have that may not have been communicated as excitingly as possible, as urgently as possible, and that sort of thing. Um, I did a book a couple of years ago that, that uh, comes up on, on this program, which is Roswell in the 21st Century, which is a more of a historical reference to what went on there, and understanding Roswell is more of an in-depth look at some of the personalities and some of the things that went on. Um, in 1947, who they were and what happened to them, and uh, 
uh, a, a great um, portion of it is dealt with, uh, I, I shouldn't say great portion, but there's a long chapter about Project Mogul and why that doesn't work in Plains of St. Augustine, and we'll get to that in a moment here. Uh, when we went away, I mentioned I was going to talk about the failures. One of the things that happened to us, and there was a number of things like this, in our communication with various people in Roswell, New Mexico, we would ask, well, you know somebody else who might be able to help us, somebody else who might have some information. One of the names that came up was Frank Hoffman. And I think some of you well aware of the Frank Hoffman story, but he claimed that he had been an NCO a master sergeant, trained in intelligence during the Second World War, and he worked with um, a number of people. He ended up at the Roswell Army Airfield during the Second World War. I saw no evidence that he ever deployed into a combat arena, by the way, which is neither here, neither here or there. Anyhow, we talked to uh, Kaufman, and he told us this marvelous story that how he was involved in the very inner workings of the investigation that he coordinated with things with Washington DC and he was out at the crash site and he saw the craft and he saw the bodies and he described that and he described what went on. Um, and he would answer all our questions and he had some documentation to support this, which we found to be impressive, persuasive. The name came up from Frank, uh, from, from Walter Hott. And I remember Don and I were standing on North Main Street uh, across from what used to be the Greyhound bus terminal near the I think it was Southwest Bank at the time, and the UFO Museum was located there uh, in one of the upper floors, a donated space that later moved down to the former theater. And we asked Walter about Frank Kaufman, and he said, if anything Kaufman tells you is golden, you can believe it. And so we did. Um, but then the story began to unravel. I know Phil Class didn't believe him from the beginning, but Phil Class doesn't believe anybody who suggested UFOs are anything but mundane uh, misidentifications or outright hoaxes. So, I mean, Phil Class's opinion wasn't that important. But um, Frank Kaufman passed away uh, around the turn of the century. And Mark Rodiger, Mark Chesney, and Don Schmidt were in Roswell, and they met with Juanita, who was Kaufman's wife. And she asked him to look at some of his papers because she wanted to make sure all his contractual obligations to various TV shows and other things had been taken care of. So they were going through the papers and discovered that the uh, separation document he had shown us, showing him as a master sergeant with some training in intelligence, wasn't a legitimate document. It had been forged by Frank Hoffman, obviously. The real one showed that he had been a, a staff sergeant and he had been trained in administration. He was a, basically a clerk typist. And in 1947, when the events took place, he was not in the military. He was assigned to the base as a civilian employee. Now, one of the things that tripped us up in the yearbook, there's a picture of Kaufman getting a medal, I think, from Payne Jennings, who was either the executive officer or the deputy commander. As best I can tell from the photograph, it's a World War II victory medal. I'm not sure why there would have been a presentation for that because that's what I think of as an everybody medal. Um, everybody medals are the ones that everybody gets no matter what your participation is. For example, in times of war, everybody in the military gets a National Defense Service Medal. And that started, I think, with the Korean War, the Vietnam War, the Gulf War, and the, uh, uh, the Iraq War. 
I have three of them for service in Vietnam, service during the Gulf War and service in Iraq. Now, I have to make it clear, I only deployed twice. The service during the Gulf War was, I did not deploy, I did not get into a combat zone. I was alerted to be to go, but it didn't happen. But so he was getting the um, World War II medal. At that point, we began a deeper investigation into what um, Kaufman had said. We got his records from St. Louis, where the Army stores the, rec the Army personnel records. Again, proving that he had been a um, staff sergeant, not a master sergeant. Mark Rodiger talked to a couple of people who had worked with him and had been cited by Kaufman and other documents as participants. And they said, no, we didn't have anything to do with that. We don't know what he's talking about. It became clear that Kaufman was making it up. Kaufman had no real relevance to the story and kind of diverted our attention and diverted some of our resources um, for a long time. Things that could, we could have been doing other things, more important things. One of the other that came up was Glenn Dennis, the Roswell mortician. Um, it became clear to me in 1997 that Glenn Dennis's story didn't, didn't make sense. Dennis uh, suggested that he had get, received a phone call asking for uh, child-size, medically sealed coffins to put the bodies in. Question finally came up, um, why would he have to have child-size coffins? You can put a small body in a larger coffin if you had it. But the story was they had to get them sent down from Amarillo. Um, and he talked about this nurse, Naomi Self, that um, had been involved in the preliminary autopsy of the bodies there on the base. And she had made an illustration for him of what they looked like. And then she was transferred off the base and was later killed in an airplane accident. We could find no record of her. And I, when I say we, Vic Golubic actually took it much further than I did. I, I was involved in a couple of investigations, one with a police officer, and we made a search of people named Naomi Self around the country. We actually found, found four people, four women named Naomi Self, which we, I found astonishing. It could seem like such a weird name. But anyway, we, we found four of them. None of them were the right ones. Um, Vic Golubic went a lot further. He got a listing of every woman who'd served as an army nurse. There's like 100, 104,000 of them, 124,000 of them. Her name didn't appear on the list. No, no name like that. I went through the New York Times index. And again, this is something that um, in the world of the internet, we don't really need. But the uh, New York Times used to publish an index of all the stories in the newspaper over a period of time. So I went through all the indexes from 1947 to like 1952 looking for an aircraft accident in which five army nurses were killed, which is what um, Glenn Dennis had told me. And there was no such accident. Don Berliner went through the Stars and Stripes, and those of you who served in the military knows the Stars and Stripes is a newspaper published for um, service personnel overseas. Uh, we, we got it on a daily basis in Iraq, for example, and I was really looking forward to each issue because Calvin and Hobbes was in it. But we could find no record of it. Uh, Vic confronted Dennis with this information. We, we can find no evidence of your nurse. And he says, well, um, I, I made up the name. He said, I promised her I wouldn't give their name out and everybody was pressing me for a name. So I, I, I made up a name, which of course negated everything that he had said, but that's not what he, he'd said in the beginning. He told me, I'll give you the name if you promise not to tell anybody what it was. And I never did until... Um, Phil Class got a hold of it somehow. He didn't get it from me. 
Um, I suspect he got it from Carl Flock, but it was after Glenn Dennis had been more um, or less less tight with the name. But anyway, the point simply is we could not uh, find a Naomi self. And once that happened, Glenn Dennis changed his story. There were other elements of the story that didn't make sense. And as we got deeper into it, it became clear that I think Glenn Dennis was inventing his tale. So I rejected, I think Don and Tom Carey um, stuck with the Glenn Dennis longer than longer than I did. Um, I think Don has abandoned it pretty much. I think Glenn, Tom still has hopes that something will, will come up that will validate Glenn Dennis. But I think that ship sailed a long time ago. And finally, the failure, I, the other failure I want to make is the Plains of St. Augustine story. And this is the tale told by Barney Barnett. Um, nobody talked to Barney Barnett. He died before we all got involved in this. Um, that includes Bill Moore and Stan Friedman and Len Stringfield and all the people who were involved in it in the early 1970s, like, yeah, the late 1970s. I talked to Fleck Danley, who had been um, Barnett's boss, and said that he'd heard the story from him and he thought it was from 1947, but he didn't really know. And when I talked to Fleck Danley, I thought he could, I could have got him to confess to crimes that I'd really pushed him on it because I didn't think he was very sharp anymore. I think, I think old age, I think he was in his nineties at the time. So his old age has kind of, kind of um, interfered with the investigation. But um, Ruth Barnett kept a diary for a night for 1947. The only year she apparently kept a diary and we got a hold of it. Um, Alice Knight, her niece uh, let me know she'd found a diary because we'd asked about this sort of thing. And she had a diary for 1947. Um, so I was, as we were going to meet Stan, and I say we, Don Schmidt and I, were going to meet Stan in, in Albuquerque. I drove down and Don, of course, flew. I stopped on my way to meet with Alice Knight, and she gave me the diary. First thing Stan says to me when we get to New Mexico, you get the diary? I said, yeah, I have it. There was nothing in the diary about Barney being involved in anything like this. Now, Stan's argument is that, well, you've been sworn to secrecy. You wouldn't go home and tell your wife and she wouldn't write it down in a diary. And I'm not sure that's true. But the other side of the coin is, according to other witnesses and then, who knew Barney Barnett, um, Vern Maltese being one of them, were at a Thanksgiving dinner and they said 1947. And Barney told him the story. They said, OK, well, now the story's out to other family members. So we looked at the diary around Thanksgiving, and there was nothing about this tale in there. So that kind of negates the Barney Barnett story. And it kind of eliminates the Plains of St. Augustine, because basically Barney Barnett's the only person that talked about that, with the exception of Gerald Anderson. And Gerald Anderson was discredited literally decades ago. So anyway, once again, this sort of information is available in Understanding Roswell. It's understand, uh, understanding. It's, it's available on my blog at www.kevinmandel.blogspot.com. There's a search engine. You type in like uh, Frank Hoffman, and you'll see all the stories about Frank Hoffman, or you type in Plains of Santa Augusta, and you'll get that kind of information as well. I will be back in just a moment, and we're going to talk about some of the facts that we've been able to determine about the Roswell case. So please stick around. And once again, I'm here, you know, get deep into the last segment. Um, one of the things that I think is important for us to talk about in, in the Roswell case is everybody agrees something fell. No discussion about that. Something fell. Something was recovered. Question is, what was it? The Air Force, well, let me backtrack. I think Don Schmidt and I did a very good job of eliminating everything. Um, we were at White Sands looking for missiles or rockets that may have um, fallen, something that would have been unusual for the time. 
I have a listing of every rocket and missile launch at, from White Sands from 1947 through the late 1950s. I mean, every one is accounted for. Nothing, nothing was missing. Um, nothing fell on the Brazel Ranch. Things fell where they weren't supposed to. Uh, I think one of the rockets in 1947 fell in Juarez, New Mexico, which, uh, I'm sorry, Juarez, Mexico, um, which caused some aggravation from various people. So we know it wasn't that. We looked for experimental aircraft, couldn't find anything. Aircraft accidents, nothing there. Uh, it was possible that it might have been an atomic bomb. And when I say atomic bomb, what I have to point out here is it would have been a mock-up, not the real thing. And in 1947, the size and shape, the actual look of the atomic bomb was classified. So they would have gone to maybe not the extraordinary efforts they did uh, to recover it, but had that happened, they would have gone to uh, somewhat extreme measures to try to recover it and keep, keep people from knowing exactly what had happened. We can find nothing like that. Then we moved to the Air Force in 19, the mid-1990s where they were going to investigate the Roswell case themselves. They validated all of that. And I think they took it further than we did. I mean, they, they had access to records we didn't we couldn't get access to, showing that it wasn't, ex, wasn't an experimental aircraft, wasn't an Air Force accident, wasn't um, any kind of um, military operation that had gone wrong. They, they looked at everything and they said, no, it's none of that stuff. They eventually came up with the, came around to the Project Mogul explanation because um, that's the only thing that was left for them. And uh, I talked to uh, Colonel Weaver and he was interviewed on this program. And, and you, of course, type uh, Richard Weaver into the search engine and you'll come up with uh, some of that, you'll come up with that program and you can listen to it yourselves. What was important in talking to Richard Weaver about this, he gave us some insight into how this all went down, but more importantly, they gathered an awful lot of records that we didn't gather and published those so that we have, for example, Dr. Albert Crary's diary and he being the leader of the experiment, the Mogul experience, experiments in New Mexico. One of the things they said about Mogul, I, I, I said I wouldn't talk about this, but I, I, I should mention this. Um, Charles Moore said that they, it was so secret that he didn't even know the name of the project when they worked on it in New Mexico. Turns out that's not true. Dr. Crary's diary mentions Mogul several times in his unclassified field notes, his unclassified diary. This is all published in the big Air Force thick book about Roswell, which uh, we have to thank Colonel Weaver for gathering and getting all that information published and insisting it be published. So everything is eliminated with the exception for them, Project Mogul. I think that we've eliminated Project Mogul based on the evidence they themselves gathered. And with that, you have nothing left. I mean, we, we have no terrestrial explanation. I would believe, I do believe, that had it been a terrestrial experiment gone wrong or some kind of terrestrial problem, in 1995, they would have trotted it out and said, here it is. This is it. That would have explained it, and we would have all gone home and said, well, thank you very much. I'll take my investigations elsewhere. Uh, that didn't happen. They came up with Mogul, which we had already refuted. So what we end up with is the Air Force investigation validating everything that we said uh, about the lack of experimental uh, aircraft or experiments that had gone wrong. Um, but it also shows the duplicity of the Air Force, because when you look at the investigation, I talked to James McAndrew, who was the other officer involved in the investigation with Weaver. He must have called me a half a dozen times. 
And he, he would always browbeat me. He said, well, you can tell me you're just in it for the money, right? And I said, no, this is a story that I find interesting and I'm going to pursue it to the end. I think it's a story that needs to be told. I said to him, if I could prove it was some kind of an experiment that had gone wrong, say, out of, out of Alamogordo or out of uh, White Sands, in which people were killed or people were um, duped into participating in it and they wanted to keep it secret to protect the people who were there, that would be a very big story. And, and I would pursue that to the end, but I could find no evidence of that whatsoever. Um, I, I thought that would be a great story and would probably become a New York Times bestseller if I could expose the Roswell case in that fashion, and I couldn't do it. So we looked at all of that sort of thing. So the Air Force was somewhat duplicitous in this with, with uh, McAndrew trying to, to um, convince me to admit that I was only in it for the money, which really isn't true because I think we lost money on the deal given all the expenses uh, that came out of our pockets for, for the investigation. And the Air Force didn't really explain explain it at all. They came up with some explanations that I think even the press found funny in 1997 when they, when they trotted out the last one, which was the anthropomorphic dummies. Um, but uh, in today's environment, they've come back around to, well, they, they accept it uh, without much in the way of question. It was kind of um, disappointing in that. But what I'm, the point simply here is there is no terrestrial explanation for what happened at Roswell. And there may be something that comes up in the future that, that would, would explain it, but I can't foresee what that might be. So when we get back down to it, and I, I hesitated to go in this direction for a long time, but I think given my experiences and what I've seen, people I've talked to, eliminating people like Glenn Dennis and Frank Kaufman and Gerald Anderson and some of these people, I lean toward the extraterrestrial because I have no other explanation. I say I lean toward it because I don't think the evidence is of sufficient quality to prove it was extraterrestrial. And I understand the problems with the extraterrestrial explanation, meaning the vast distances in space. The problems with moving a object through interstellar space at relativistic speeds. If you're hit by something the size of a grain of uh, rice at relativistic speeds, the um, collision is going to be catastrophic because of the kinetic energy potential moving at those kinds of speeds. Uh, James, Mac uh, James, James Van Allen said to me that um, at those kinds of speeds, because space isn't empty, it's filled with a lot of hydrogen. And you're in essence bombarding your spacecraft with these hydrogen atoms at relativistic speeds. And you would fry everybody in the, in the uh, spacecraft if it wasn't sufficiently shielded. Plus you have the problems of what is your fuel source? I mean, these are problems we do not have answers for, which means we cannot fly at inter, in interstellar space uh, with any, any kind of expectation of gaining great scientific knowledge. But that doesn't mean somebody else hasn't figured out how to do it, or there is not a shortcut that we do not perceive at this time. Wormholes, for example, might allow us to bend space in such a way as we can short circuit to distances. So I understand that problem and that's why I hesitate for embracing the Roswell cases extraterrestrial period end of discussion. But I lean that direction because I do not know of any explanation you can offer that is sufficient to cover all the facts and all the testimony. Once we eliminate 
the testimonies and the evidence that comes from the less than credible sources. So on the 25th or the 25th, the 75th anniversary of the Roswell case, I will tell you, I lean toward the extraterrestrial. I don't think we've proved it. I think that there's work to be done. I'm not sure what we're going to do because I don't think there's any um, uh, people who were assigned to Roswell in 1947 still alive, first-hand witnesses still alive to interview that get us information. I know Don and Tom are talking to grandchildren of these people, which is something that I'm not a fan of. I, I think we need to talk to the primary sources, and once we get far beyond those, it's it's really not very useful. Continue the continue the search. Next week. If I've got the name right, I'm going to be talking to a guy named Blair Blake, and he has investigated the the um, Allende letters. And for those of you who need a quick course on that, we'll get into it in depth. That, but uh, these were letters sent to the Office of Naval Research, or not Office of Naval Intelligence, in um, the 1950s, suggesting some kind of inside knowledge about what was going on in the flying saucers, and uh, it been a part of the UFO. Um, tradition since that time. Uh, the Philadelphia experiment is an outgrowth of these Allende letters. I uh, did an article in official UFO in the 1970s about the Allende letters, and uh, you may not understand it now, but I got a copy of my article back with the annotations from Allende. What had happened, what got to the Office of Naval Research was a copy of a book called The Case for the UFO by a fellow named Morris Jessup. And Three people had supposedly gone through it, made comments in the margins, under underlinings, and all this suggested some kind of superior knowledge about UFOs. And it caused some aggravation for people. And we'll get into all of this. But the fellow, the fellow I'm going to talk to, he managed to track down a copy of the Varro manufactured book. Um, what happened is Sidney uh, Sherby and um, I think George Hoover uh, paid Varro Manufacturing to duplicate the annotations in kind of a large you know, manuscript size format, all the typing, the underlandings, and all of that put into it. Um, they made 25 copies, I think it was. Maybe it was more than that, uh, but 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 fewer than 100 copies. And I actually held one in, in my hands from Sidney Sherby. Um, Blair got a copy off, believe it or not, either eBay or Craigslist found a copy of it. And we'll be discuss his, his um, trek to copy, track, track down the copy and my trek to track down the copy and the information and how it all relates to the UFO field and what we think of it. So we'll be talking about that in depth next week and we'll have copies. Uh, we'll have um, some of the illustrations there so you can see exactly what we're talking about in the way of underlinings and that sort of thing and all that information about it. Um, I also want to point out, and I, I don't think it gets quite enough information. I think the, the second best UFO sighting is probably the Leveland cases. And as you all know, I did a book called Leveland, cleverly, which is available. And I think it gives a very good explanation of that whole case and kind of, again, shoots down the Air Force duplicity in their investigation of what they said. And so uh, you get a chance, take a look at Leveland. Take a look at all my books at Amazon. If you like them, give it a nice uh, rating. If you don't like it, and want to give it a poor review, feel free to do that because I could use the information and the feedback. I will be back in 167 hours with Blake Blair, and we'll talk about the Allende letter, so I'll chat with you then. Thanks for stopping by. <laughs>